I don't understand what it's like to watch a game that I love and not relate to anybody who's playing it. So this comes from commentary or anything. And, and one of my participants said one of the great, great quotes to me, you know, when, just when you're doing an interview and you just get a great quote. And she, mm. said, um, she said, when I was a kid and I was in the backyard playing footy, I would imagine myself playing for Essendon but I would imagine myself playing for the men's team. I couldn't even process in my mind that I would be playing for girls. That was the voice of Paul Bell, the guest on this episode of The Knowledge Mill. I'm your host, Greg Yoakum. Paul is a PhD candidate within the Sports Innovation Research Group at Swinburne University of Technology. Paul's research project seeks to understand how women Australian rules footballers affectively experience digital self-tracking, and what impacts these interactions have on the players' construction of selfhood, identity-making, and body as athletes. With these insights, he aims to develop a framework that empowers women footballers to maximize their performance through digital self-tracking, while promoting positive self-image and women athletes' identity. Paul obtained a Bachelor of Arts with Honours specializing in sociology from the Australian National University. Paul's Honours Project, in which he achieved first-class honours, investigated the compliance processes of employees who were digitally self-tracked in their workplace. As an undergraduate, Paul was awarded a new Colombo Plan Scholarship that allowed him to participate in an ethnographic field school in the western highlands of Papua New Guinea. During the ethnographic field school in Papua New Guinea, Paul conducted fieldwork activities including interviews, survey taking, and social and participant observations focused on the social restrictions of cash cropping. Paul has also worked at Deakin and Latrobe Universities, lecturing and tutoring first and second year undergraduate sociology and sport management units. Paul is also a board member for the Sports Innovation Research Group Advisory Board, a position he has held since May 2022. Paul and I spoke after the first day of the 2022 Conference of the Sport Management Association of Australia and New Zealand, aka SMANS. I had only met Paul that same day, and yet we easily fell into a wide-ranging conversation about his academic journey and women's sport. Two days later, Paul won the 2022 SMAN's three-minute thesis award. Did our chat spur him to victory? Some things are not for us to know. This episode of The Knowledge Mill was recorded on November 30th, 2022, on the campus of Swinburne University of Technology during the 28th annual SMAN's conference. Show notes, including links to more information on some of the topics that Paul and I discuss, can be found at theknowledgemill.com slash episode three. That's episode and the numeral three. Hello, Paul. Welcome. Hi, Greg. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for being a part of this. Uh, we, are, we are here at the, the SMANS Conference, Sport Management Association of Australia and New Zealand, on the campus of Swinburne in Melbourne, uh, sitting down to have a chat about your PhD. And as we always do, I'd like to start just by hearing from you, how did you find yourself doing a PhD? Oh, it's a it's a, a long story, a long journey. But um, well, first off, I, I'll, I'll tell you what my PhD study is because I'll probably reference that. So I'm in the the third year, so I'm probably about eight months away, ten months away from submitting. Um, so I'm my background is I'm a sociologist. Um, so I'm looking at sort of sports sociology, and I'm looking uh, I'm interested in um, what's called like the datafication of society. So how people interact with different technologies, and my particular study is I'm looking at um, AFLW women, so Australian um, Football League, Australian Rules Football women, um, and their interactions with digital self-tracking, so things like Fitbits, GPS trackers, um, uh, Apple Watches, and how they experience using those. So I don't really care about 
how many steps they do or what data they mm-hmm. generate, just how they experience it. And then that experience, how that they see themselves and their body. So that's my study. So my background is really different. So I'm not an academic as such. Like I left school when I was 16 and I'm actually a qualified chef. All right. And I worked as a chef for 24 years. Um, so I, I love cooking. If I could cook every day for the rest of my life, it'd be great. Mm. But it's not a great profession. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a really hard profession. So um, I, after I grew up in Melbourne and then I moved to Cairns and I lived in Cairns for about 15 years. So a lot of the issues that we have at the moment around um, staff shortage and um, um, skill shortage, um, they were issues long before the pandemic. And working in a place like Cairns, which is a, a regional part of um, North Queensland, um, really difficult to get um, people to, to work in those industries. Um, so I found that I was running kitchens up there and it's just um, being a chef, it's a very procedural job in which mm. you just do the same process over and over again. Um, and you just end up employing this, uh, different people every six months. You get a lot of tourists um, mm. who come and um, like they're, they're backpackers who, who work for six months. So I found that aspect of it really difficult. And then also just um, health reasons, like you're working 60 hours a week and I hurt, hurt my... Um, hurt my knee. Mm. So I needed, I wanted to change professions, but I had no idea about like what to do or anything like that. And I wasn't academically inclined. I didn't like school. I left school when I was 16. Um, And I was sort of, this is sort of, this is going to be tangential at the start, but I'll get back to my research now is that when I was at school, I was sort of pigeonholed as having a learning difficulty. Um, There was I just basically was told by all my teachers that that I wasn't very good at reading, I wasn't very good at spelling. Um, So I just believed that. So I I left school when I was 16, I got a trade, and I pretty much for the next 20 years of my life, I just disengaged from any sort of reading or writing because I believed that I couldn't do it. And it's a sort of a a discourse that that sort of everybody in my life sort of just, just had, and it was just a fact about me that that was the case. And it wasn't until I was thinking, so this is back about 2013, 14, I was thinking about changing professions and my partner, who's now my wife, she was um, at university as a mature age student, so she was about 26, 27, and she was doing an urban planning degree. And I met Brianna and, um, yeah, she was really supportive. She, I said, oh, look, I really want to stop chefing, I want to try something different. She said, I've thought about doing uni. I was like, I can't do uni. People at uni are really smart. I'm not <laughs> smart. Um, and, and yeah, she was really supportive. And, and what I did is um, I looked at doing a, a diploma of higher education, which is a, it's a bridging course that you can do for one year. And it's a standalone degree. I was in Cairns at, at that time. So I went to James Cook University. And the, the diploma is, it's equivalent of, um, I think it's eight undergraduate subjects and they becomes a standalone degree but then you can also do it if say you're lacking a maths b or an english to get into a a bachelor degree you can do the diploma and then transfer across and get credits so yeah so brianna was really supportive um in me doing that so i did the enrolled and got into the diploma i chose social science just as a stream i had no real real interest of what I was going to do mm-hmm. um, I thought I might do a double degree in business and arts because I thought uh, if, if I get a business degree I could go back into the hospitality industry and work say as a general manager and then 
one bit of advice I could give to anyone is if you're going to do any sort of undergraduate or definitely a PhD, you have to do something that you're really passionate about. Absolutely. And I read all the core subjects for the business courses and I couldn't imagine doing any of those. (laughs) (laughs) So I just chose to do an arts, basically an arts degree. Um, So I did the first six months and I absolutely loved it. And I remember the first day of like a lecture, I walked in and the lecture was just amazing. And I went home and I said to my wife, oh, I think I want to be a, a lecturer, like a university lecturer. All right. And it was the first time in my life, like it was just such a, a far out thing to say mm. because like I was just starting a diploma of higher education. I didn't even know if I could write an essay, let alone complete a PhD to be a university lecturer. And she's like, oh, that's such a great idea. You should definitely do that. So yeah, I, I really took to the study really well. Being a mature age student, I, I treated it like a job. I mm-hmm. rock up to the library at 8.30 in the morning and leave at like six o'clock at night. And six months into the diploma, the, um, the staff there said, look, we really think you should transfer into a Bachelor of Arts. And I transferred into a Bachelor of Arts and did that. And then about 18 months at James Cook, my wife, she completed her um, undergraduate and then she got a job with the federal government in Canberra. And then I was able to transfer to the ANU and I finished my undergraduate at the ANU. So, um, and then I got, did honours at, at ANU. Um, and that was where I sort of went down with, with art. You, you, when you're doing an undergraduate, you, you dabble in a lot of things. So I was sort of looking at a little bit of anthropology. I was looking at the ANU. They have a really good um, School of Pacific Studies. Hmm. So I was quite interested there. I actually went to PNG and did a, um, an ethnographic field school. Yeah, right. Um, so I was sort of interested in that, but at that time I was about 37, 38, and if I did like a, a PhD in sort of Pacific studies, it would probably mean 11 or 12 months of ethnographic work yeah. in the Pacific Island. So, so I came across this sociologist, um, Associate Professor Gavin Smith at ANU, and he's a... Um, his sort of expertise is around surveillance, um, criminology, and um, this sort of datafication, looking at um, CCTV cameras, and he was getting into these self-tracking devices. Mm. So Gavin sort of took me under his wing, and um, this is sort of really probably relevant to being at the conference. It's it's really great to sort of network with academics, and yeah. and I volunteered with Gavin and just did research, um, RA work, research assistant work with Gavin for about 12 months just reading papers, writing up abstracts, putting together um, literature reviews, um, like all, all for free, but, mm-hmm. but really really valuable sort of information. And then Gavin was my honours supervisor. And I did, um, did my honours looking at employees' um, experiences of digital self-tracking. So things like, you know, the, the Domino's cars that drive around and they've got the sign on top of the Domino's car. Mm. So that's actually plugged into the cigarette lighter and that will track the position of the car. Okay. And goes to the store, but also goes to the customer. But then that also will track the speed of the car and right. goes back to the store. So I spoke to employees around those sort of um, conditions and how that sort of tracking made them feel in their job and things yeah. like that. And then, yeah, as I... Um, as I was coming to the end of my honours, um, Melbourne was calling us home and um, uh, I started to, I wanted to do a PhD um, and I started to apply for, for um, universities in Melbourne and I came across Swinburne and I knew I needed to find a, a topic and I wanted to keep on going in the, the tracking sort of aspect. Um, and my other love in life is, uh, is sport. Mm-hmm. So I love, I love sport. So... Um, I was actually, it was 
probably, I think it was 2018, the Women's World Cup of Football was on. And I, had, I wouldn't say it was an epiphany, but it was like, it was like two o'clock at night and I was watching, I think it was Australia was playing France or something like that. And I just, I had this idea, I was watching at the time, Ali Carpenter, who's Australia's right back. She's been in the Matildas set up since she was 15. At the time she was about 17 or 18. And she was playing with, um, with a, a striker, Lisa Devannon, who was coming to the end of her career. She was about 35. And I was sitting there thinking, because I was trying to think of a topic for, for my PhD. And um, I thought to myself, um, because the Matildas have gone through a very rapid um, change of professionalisation in which Ali Carpenter, who being like 15, coming into that, her experience of the Matildas would have been far different than Lisa Devannon, mm. who 15 years ago playing for the Matildas was far less professionalised. And it got me thinking, what would it be like for both Ali and Lisa with their experiences with, say, digital self-tracking? Yeah. Um, because Ali Carpenter has been in a lead environment a whole life and she would probably take to that sort of device as much quicker than, say, what Lisa would. So from that that sort of moment, it got me sort of thinking about developing my study. And then, yeah, I put, put together an application and, and I was lucky enough to get a scholarship at at Swinburne and, and yeah, came, came back to Melbourne at the start of 2020 and, and started, um, started now, which I'm, I'm just about ready to, to pass. So, yeah, I think I'm the prototype that has um, debunked the, the theory that you have to be smart <laughs> to, to, to get into academia and, um, and, and do a PhD. It's, a, it's very much um, a holistic skill set. Mm. Um, and the thing I found about... Um, Getting back to what I was saying about the, this narrative that I that I sort of grew up um, having this learning disorder, um, it's sort of come a full circle now because sort of in my theorising of my my thesis, um, I'm very much looking at the ways in which um, which which discourses so, so sort of non-human things sort of clash with people. So when I'm, I'm talking about like the technology itself, so you know if, if your Apple Watch tells you to stand up. You're having an interaction with a non-human thing, but I'm also really interested in the way in which, um, like, like culture and and society, and the discourses we have. So, particularly in my space, the the, the cultural thinking about masculinity in sport, mm-hmm. and, and how that impacts um, women's participation and what the wider society believes women can and can't do within a sporting context, and especially looking at these emerging sports like like Australian rules football and. And, and these discourses are really pervasive and I've really sort of lived through that, this, this discourse of um, you've got a learning difficulty, you can't really read, you can't really write and it, it becomes very, um, it becomes truth and it becomes true mm. to you. Yeah. Um, and it's something which I've, I've completely debunked is that, you know, if you're not, if you, if, if you feel like you, you haven't got that skill, like it's something which you, you need to engage in. Mm. And I just found um, through constant reading constant writing like the more reading i did the better my vocabulary got the better my writing got um and it's just like like playing a music learning how to play a musical instrument um and that's that's something where i've sort of found like i've come this full circle now is understanding through my sort of sociological lens like the process that i went through to to sort of disengage from sort of that to now I always describe it as like I went through this like like enlightenment of like like knowledge, you know, mm. like like now I just I could just spend the rest of my life learning, and I think that's the 
the thing that I'm sort of enjoying the most is just yeah. constantly learning. Yeah. Yeah, that's, well, that's all really interesting uh, because I think there's an identity component to it as well that you maybe see yourself as academic or you don't see yourself as academic. Mm. Uh, or maybe I should rephrase that and say you see yourself as not academic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you do internalize that, I think it's, you know, it, I had a similar experience in my undergrad. I was a very average undergrad student. And I remember I have a very specific memory one night when I was... And this was back in uh, the, the early noughts. Uh, and so to check my homework assignments for chemistry I was taking at the time, I had to physically go to the chemistry building and look at the printed answer guide that was up on a bulletin board behind some glass. Uh, and I was down there late one night. I'd just done a homework assignment with a friend of mine. And it was just the two of us down there, except for way down the end of the corridor, there was someone else. And the way that the building was laid out is I was there for chemistry 101, down one end of the hall and the further you went down the hall the more advanced the chemistry got and this person was all the way down the end and they were there and they were looking at their answer guide and I I remember having the thought I wish I was that academic mm -hmm. uh, and it was only in recent years that I was telling that story to someone else and my wife has heard that story many times uh, and she finally just said to me but Greg you were also there looking at mm -hmm. the answers yeah <laughs> you, you were you only saw the other person because you were doing the same yeah. thing <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it's really helped me, like I, I teach now, so I've been teaching the last 18 months at um, Deakin University and La Trobe University, and it, it, it really helps me with my approach with my undergraduates, mm. and sort of, um, I did, it, when I was an undergraduate as well, I did a lot of student support help as well, um, and I'm really, it's the two things I'm passionate about, like I'm really passionate about my research, um, like sociology, I could just talk about sociology all day and, mm -hmm. and the research and, and especially researching, I know you've got the same interest, but researching in, in women's sport mm -hmm. and really sort of forwarding that. But I'm also really passionate about, about university and about creating opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, my um, nephew has just gone through VCE, he's just finished his VCE and I'm um, talking to my brother and, and the, the discourses that are still around going to to university for or, or finishing year 12 for these students is still very much around you're either going to get an enter or you're not going to get an enter you're going to go to university you're not going to go to university and i find that very limiting mm. um and there shouldn't be these these limitations placed on young people there should be more of a framing of okay university m might not be for you now right but it's something which you can come to. Like my wife, she was a, a, a mature age student. She was, was very um, academically um, inclined at, at school. Mm -hmm. And then she came out, um, she, she grew up in the country, so she moved to Melbourne. She had, she had a lot of um, different factors which were hard, but straight out of school, she went to university and she didn't have a very good experience and mm -hmm. she ended up leaving her undergraduate before the first year was finished. But now she's, um, as a mature age student, she had time in industry. She, she worked in different different industries. Um, she was a, a real estate consultant for a, for a high Melbourne firm. And then she's become an urban planner. And now she just finished her master's in urban planning um, while she's also worked for the Australian government and now the Victorian government. And I just sort of look at someone like her and think like, you know, if you just put, stamp the papers and say she's not good at university yeah. at 18, yeah. like, it's too it's too constricting and especially now with the the rate of technological change 
that we we have like talking about my, my nephew and thinking about you know what does he want to do for the future like there's going to be whole industries in renewable energy and that that don't even exist now yeah that, that, that he's going to work in. Like my brother works in the automobile industry and like he was a mechanic and now he's more in the management side, but that whole industry is going to completely change in which you're going to have people that are going to have to service electrical cars and, and things like that. So so to put limitations on, on a person at a particular age and saying they can or can't, can't go to university. So I'm really passionate about about just helping anyone yeah. Anyone and, and I've been fortunate. I've done a lot of work at Deakin University and I've been able to go down to their Geelong campus. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something I really enjoy. Um, the Warm Ponds campus has has a lot of um, first generation students who are going to university. Um, and, and I really enjoy that sort of interaction and and breaking some of the myths. I think a lot of people come to universities and they think there's a there's a whole lot of these closed rooms where people sit around and argue about using an Oxford <laughs> comma or not. Or, yeah. <laughs> but like, it's the most supportive place. I've, I've worked and studied in about five universities and they're the most supportive places that, that are there to help you. Mm. But the, it's independent learning. You have, to, you have to seek out the help and you have to know where to find the help. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and going back to, because I, I would agree with, you know, I've, I've been working as a as a tutor first and now a lecturer in an Australian uni for eight years. And it's very different to the American uni system, but different in all the ways that you're speaking to, that there's more opportunities, that it's a bit more, I don't know if egalitarian is the right word, but it just, you know, a fair go for anyone who wants to have a crack. Uh, And there are those opportunities uh, to, if if you don't have the uh, the, the HSC scores or whatever you need to do the thing you want to do, there are still pathways. But as you say, if you're told this is not for you, you'll never be that. Uh, you might as well do this. And when you're young and impressionable, that can really that can mm. really stick. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Most most definitely. So so yeah. So I'm sort of this as as I'm sort of becoming to the end of my PhD, yeah, I'm really sort of, I see myself, like I want to continue on and be that university lecturer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely want to keep on researching and working in sociology, but but I do see also myself sort of opportunities I could see myself working in, um, like student engagement or, or student, um, student support, academic support, or those sort of areas as well. They're really, I'm really passionate about both of those fields, which which I'm really open to as well. Because and um, yeah, I love like I love. We just had a, a workshop there, and we talked about um, early career researchers. Just saying, oh, we love teaching. We love teaching. Mm. But it is something which I re- I really enjoy doing as well. Yeah, and it's when you're when you're working casually in your PhD, sometimes it has to go on the back burner. I could find that really frustrating. Yeah. When I was doing my PhD, I felt like. If I could just run this subject, I know yeah. there's things that I would do a certain way, not because, you know, th- this idea is bad, but because I've got this other thought I want to mm. try. Uh, and if you have your experience that you're bringing to it to try to help uh, similar students, mm. I think that can, that can feel yeah. really limiting. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I find teaching, teaching for me has been really enriching. Mm. Um, I, had a, I had some really good advice from... Um, um, from a colleague and we're talking about sort of managing because there's so many different competing interests when you're doing a PhD like mm. if you if you just could sit there and just do your dissertation without having to you know fulfill you know your, your publications your, your speaking engagements yeah. your, your um your teaching and, and getting your networks up everything to get the job yeah yeah exactly 
Um, but yeah, um, but Kat gave me this um, gave me this advice of like, you know, whatever you do in regards to teaching or anything that you say yes to, papers, um, collaborations, try and um, try and have it some way where it can advance your PhD. Hmm. And it can add interest in your PhD. It could be a paragraph in a lit review. It could be, you know, help help forming. And and I've been really lucky with the the subjects that I've taught. I've taught um, like a sports sociology subject at Deakin. I've I've taught introduction to sociology at Deakin. I've taught sports management at Latrobe. They've really c- cemented my thinking, um, my theoretical sort of grounding of where my PhD is going. And mm. and I've, I've sort of had a a stagnated PhD. Um, I started it at um, 2020, um, February 2020. So I came into the university at Swinburne. I just moved from Canberra. Life was great. Um, moved in with my mum for a month, and then was going to go rent a. We're going to go rent a house, and then a year and a half later, we're still in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was so especially I, bad in Melbourne, wasn't it? All yeah, the lockdowns. Yeah, so we had. I think it was about eight months of 2020. We were in lockdown. Um, so I started the PhD then, and that was actually good. That was good for me, mm. not good for the lockdown, but for the work, because it was just the first year you're just in the literature, you're just reading, and I just got to spend like 10 hours a day at home just yeah. reading and that. And, but then, yeah, getting into 2021, then I had to start doing data collection, and that was where it just all became very hard with the, with the AFLW players that I was dealing with. Um, the AFLWs had just the most turbulent 12 months mm. partly due to covid but partly due to the emergent nature of the the sport so i started then so so everything was going fine the first 18 months was going fine i wasn't didn't really worry about covid at all um and then i started doing my data collection about august and it just became really clear really quickly that it was going to be difficult mm. Um, so just the nature of the, the, the players, um, we thought we were just, because um, we're sort of club ag- agnostic in the study, so we thought we'd just approach players, but it came clear with the, with the power imbalance of the AFLW players compared to their clubs, it would be better to go through the clubs. So we sort of contacted the clubs and we got some good, good uptake from, from about half a dozen clubs. But because of the contractual arrangements with AFLW players, um, in the clubs because they're only part-time the clubs can't sort of interact and contract with the players until they're at the club uh. and then the season got cancelled for a month so then the players didn't come back to the club from september to october so then data collection got put off and then got a, started doing a little bit and then just at the end of 2021 the season started and that's when the i think it was the omicron wave just absolutely went crazy mm-hmm. so then the players become very insular in what they're doing because AFLW players are part-time athletes. They've got, most of them have jobs outside. So the ramifications of them getting COVID was quite significant. It's a a short season. So if you miss two games, you've missed nearly a a third of the season or or a quarter of the season. Mm. You then can't fulfill your employment at the job, which is which is giving you the money. So, so they were very hesitant in doing that. And then just halfway through the summer season, the AFL sort of floated the idea of then changing the start of the next season from or bringing it forward from January 2023 to August this year, mm-hmm. uh, 2022. So then the players needed to go and have a break. And so I ended up, data collection was supposed to start in 
September 2022 and finish in February 2020. <laughs> sorry, starting in September 2021 and finish in, in February 2022. And then it got to July. I just stopped it at July this year. Right. So it took, it took nearly 12 months. So in that time, there was a lot of downtime, a lot of time where I couldn't really do anything. Like, yeah. like I'd already written the first half, like the front half, and there was no point going back and changing anything or really reworking anything until mm. you start to find out, you know, how your results are coming out and things like that. So the teaching was a really good, not distraction, but it was able for me to do something which was benefiting my development yeah but then and at the time i think a lot of phd candidates have this you feel almost guilty like you're you're spending hours marking you're spending hours doing other things but and then you look at the end of the week and you're like i've done nothing on the phd this week yeah but for me uh, being strategic um, about what i was doing um, because when you're teaching sociology especially introduction to sociology and sports sociology you're only like two steps away from talking about gender or race so gender is very much especially in in a sports sociology lens it's it's very much um based around a lot of your what what you're talking about and um it really helped me sort of solidify um a lot of the groundings of what i wanted to do so i think that was that's something which i could probably um say to to people that that are thinking about doing a phd or they're just about embarking on it is 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 don't discount these extra things that you do is just think of them as as tick boxing to 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 get your um your personal development up there they're things that that you can if you strategically think about what you're doing they can they can enhance your work and 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 really sort of um round your work out and i've found that i've been really lucky in in what i've been able to do with that Mm. i would agree with yeah everything that you're saying I, i was also very lucky to be able to my phd was design thinking in sport and i was also able to uh not only teach a design thinking subject that we call innovation lab at UTS, uh, but also to uh, do sports sociology units, sport and society, uh, those kind of things. And it was just the the perfect wheelhouse to always have my my brain in. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, even if I'm not, you know, I'm sitting there reading eighty essays or whatever, uh, and it's not to do with any top. Maybe it's about uh, sweatshops in sport equipment manufacturing. So doesn't enter into my thesis at all but just to be amongst those similar ideas uh and as well to be i i found the manifest curiosity of my students to mm. be just continually motivating and yeah. uh exhilarating and like it's one thing to just sit there and just read and immerse yourself in things but when you're actually having to six times a week for 50 minutes talk about an issue with 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 young like 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 engage minds and then sort of bounce off the ideas of what they're saying and uh, try and guide them to a particular point that you're trying to make but then sort of you know see where they're at and sociology is a really great subject to teach but it's a difficult subject to teach Mm. because uh, like when like there's there's when you're teaching a science subject or you're teaching a business subject there's ways to do things and ways not to do things and people come to it as like, okay, you're going to tell me how to be an accountant sort of thing. But when you come to being a sociologist or learn sociology, like everybody has a lived experience of their, soci- of their social world. And most of us take it for granted. Mm. Um, and that's why there's a lot of inherently problematic issues in the world. So like in Australia, 
particular aspects and particular lifestyles and particular places in Australia. Like there's, there's ingrained racist views, which are part of people's um, like social construction of how they see the world. Right. So, and and especially for for my space of like women in sport, there's there's especially in that there's particular gender views, which are socially constructed about the capabilities of women in sport and and this masculinity as being a particular aspect or a particular trait which is which is accustomed to particular sports and if if you are a feminine person like a woman you cannot do those sports so when you come to teach that and you challenge people on those sort of notions and and these are these are these are just matter of fact sort of things that that people don't actually question it, yeah. it sometimes can be really difficult but it can be really rewarding also to sort of um to have people have those moments and think oh yeah. I, haven't, I haven't actually thought about that or or you you frame that in a different perspective or yeah so yeah even just things very simple and when you think about them obvious things like gender marking of leagues uh like the big bash league for example uh, you have the Big Bash League, which is the men's competition, and then the women's Big Bash League, which is, of course, the women's competition. But the fact that that one is gender marked and the men's is not, that's that's what I'm always talking to my students mm. about. Like, what does this tell us yeah. about uh, what what this competition is? It's, yeah. it's other, right? It has well, this different it. name. It's There's only gender distinctions made in the AFL when they're talking about women. Mm. So what does that mean? It means that the, the normalized AFL body and player is a man and that when a woman enters that space then there has to be a distinction made right so they're not so they're obviously playing a different game because it's aflw as mm. opposed to afl so you're completely right and and it's it's what i sort of enjoy the most i think is is really making that making that um impression on 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 students and now with my work like what i, what I want to do with my, my phd is really sort of um get that out there um, and I think it's really important as we're here at, at SMANS is, is thinking about the positionality of the researchers. So um, that was probably one of the things I had to think about the most is I'm a, a, a middle-aged white cisgendered male. Mm. Um, so really coming into a space of, of, of doing research with, with, with young women in, in women's sport is, is, is very challenging, but it's not insurmountable. Mm. And I think it's something which, especially um, looking at like sports management and sports sociology, there needs to be more of. Yeah. Um, so um, with my, my supervisor, um, Professor Emma Sherry here at Swinburne, um, and some other colleagues, Dr. Casey Simons and, and Dr. Um, Aurelie Pankowick, we've written a paper which we've, we're currently got under review at the moment. And we did a scoping review of all the articles written um, in the sports management literature for the past 20 years around women and girls. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we found about eight, eight or 9,000 articles. And after we did it, there was probably 400 articles left about women and girls. And it was really, what we found was actually really surprising and what was not there. It was really superficial. Um, most of the, the work is around participation mm -hmm. and most of it is all around um, white heterosexual women and they're, they're really positioned as homogenous we only found 40 papers that were based around um like intersectionality so looking at um you know, things like race things like um sexuality 
um, gender and things like that. So I think it's really important um, going forward that, that, that people like myself going into academia, going into like the institutional academia, being a, a white male, really push that agenda of, of getting more people to research those sort of groups because the other thing we found is that the majority and this has been done um people like um neff walker who's done a, a lot of work in america as a, mm-hmm. in sports management um the people that are researching these intersectional groups are from those groups right um so, so, so just a lot of a lot of women do a lot of um a lot of women academics are doing um feminine research and i think that that's really something which i think be good to challenge and, and get more more um more people doing because the, the fact remains is that the white male is the person that's setting the syllabus that's setting the direction in the the um the faculties um is is um heading up the supervisor panels and things like that so they yeah. can set the agendas mm. so that's another thing i'm really passionate about sort of coming to the end of my phd is seeing much more research and, and focus given to to women's sport and intersectional research um, in that sort of sports sociology and sports management space. Mm. Well, I think because allyship is important, uh, you know, speaking broadly about just feminism, full stop, uh, one of the, the things that you need is allyship, male allies. Yeah. Uh, but I, I agree with, with what you're saying because, as you said, I have a similar interest. I haven't necessarily researched in this area, but in my teaching and, and just my general being informed, uh, this is an, an area of mine that I, I would like to move my research into. But in saying that, I know that I need to be very careful because I'm a privileged person coming into this space, uh, and that can be counterproductive mm. or harmful if I'm not careful about how I do it. M- most definitely. So that's why I said at the start, it's really knowing your positionality and mm. your, your position. So most definitely, like, I fully acknowledge that we're two white males here sitting around talking about doing research for women and and too often this is where um like research on indigenous australians Mm -hmm. um is is really become problematic because it's just just we've as a country we've just spent 200 years of making decisions for people without asking them so most definitely um there definitely needs to be this allyship this this consultation but i do think that that too often it's gone it's gone the other way especially in this sports management realm where it's left to too few to do and i'm talking more about um like impactful research yeah so as i said like what we found in the paper that we've written is that that there's a focus on participation so there's there's almost this belief that once women or girls start playing sport it's fine and I think that the, what I'm really sort of trying to get at is, is is making this impactful research of like, well, what's the what's the lived experience of these mm-hmm. these women and girls participating in sport? Um, you know, is it? You know, we see it in the AFLW. Like this year, one of the teams went up to Sydney to play a game, and it was at a suburban ground, and was um, there was one toilet for the whole team. Right. There was male and females. Yeah, that's so, a problem know, around the country, isn't yeah, it? With, so, yeah, so we've got a lack of infrastructure for women and girls at all levels of sport playing. So while it's great that we're, we're, we're trying to um, push agendas to get participation and participation is really important, it's, it's, it's a superficial view. Mm. 
So looking at, at this more impactful sort of thing. So definitely, definitely, I think there's, there's a mix. Like we can't go the other way where there's just a whole group of men deciding what women do because that's, yeah. that's, that's exactly what we've come through, the patriarchy that's not right. But I do think that there's a, there's a scope for more, for more people in, in academia to take an interest in these marginalised groups and look at these groups differently. I think that's more what I'm trying to say is look at them differently. Yeah. There's this, um, just, they're not a, it's not a homogenous group that experiences everything the same. Mm. And we need to sort of, sort of take that into to account, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's, and we have to do that. Uh, to be able to do that, we need the research and yeah. the understanding. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yes, that's sort of what I'm what I'm sort of excited about as I'm coming now to the to sort of the pointy end of uh, yeah. end of my my thesis. So. Are you able to speak about your your findings at all? Yeah. So so what I what I found is that um so I did a as I said at the the start. So I'm looking at um, through what's called a a vital materialist materialist lens or, or a posthumanist lens, which is the way I'm framing the study. So basically, that's a it's a more than human perspective. So I'm taking into consideration the the non-human aspects of this this um, tracking assemblage, as I'm calling it, of the of the the way in which the players interact with their tracking. So, um, taking that sort of perspective on, I'm looking at all the different aspects within uh, within the tracking that the player does. So, so how they interact with their watch, um, how they interact with their data, how they share the data, um, what what the different discourses around. Um, uh, the idea of like what is it like what is this is socially and culturally expected to be a professional athlete um, so so things like lo- using these performance monitoring tools are, are highly coveted in elite sport so it's a, so these um, these social expectations are, are really um, quite pivotal in getting these players to engage in these these um, tracking activities but but there's also this positioning around data, just data in general, and um, technology in general, as being very objective. Mm. So we, we just look at data and we think that's what the data is. Data is highly subjective. So these footballers are a perfect example of that. So some of them, most of them are semi-professional. So some of them are, are landscape gardeners. Some of them are paramedics, nurses, yeah. um, builders, labourers. There was one. Um, that I spoke to that was a, a wharf worker that would actually work night shift and come straight from the wharf or go to tr- football training, then go to the wharf and, and like do whatever there, like drive forklifts and things like that. So, but the thing is, is that this data is presented objectively. So there's no asterisk next to the football's name saying, saying yeah. um, this, this footballer here worked a 12-hour nursing shift and then came to training. Yeah. This is why their high-speed running is a little bit low. So, so what I found is that taking all these, these um, social and cultural discourses along with the, 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 the tracking technology itself and the, the, taking into account the, the, the fitness staff, the, the coaches, the, the, the expectations of the AFL, AFL community, it makes a very, very vexing and very complicated um, experience for the footballers with this tracking technology. And what it tends to happen is the footballers have to self-manage these outcomes um so they have to they get a lot of different um i I use a effect theory so effects are like feelings Mm -hmm. um but effects are are, um 
they're basically bodily impacts that you get from something. So if you um, if you get scared and you start getting this, um, like your heart starts beating, your, yeah. your skin starts to crawl, like these are effects that, that, that happen corporally to your body, but then your mind recognises it after it's happened and then that is processed through your mind as being a feeling. Mm-hmm. So effects aren't feelings, they're intensities that are felt through the body and then the generation of that effect is the feeling that's in your mind. Right. So... I'm using these different effects that are being generated through this digital self-tracking assemblage that the players have. And there's, there's multitudes of these effects and there's some positive ones and there's some negative ones. And these, this is the real vexing thing is that the players can get really positive affirmation from doing this digital self-tracking. They can, they can feel quite motivated. They can feel happy. Like, like I've had comments where it's just like you feel on top of the world when you smash out a really great session. But then conversely, when, um, when things aren't going well, when, when you're fatigued or when you haven't slept well, um, a lot of things around menstrual cycles. So, you know, if they're on their, their period and their, their, um, their fatigue is low and things like that, um, when their data's not good, it can be really detrimental and it can be really yeah. negative. And the lack of infrastructure around the knowledge and the support and the education means that the the footballers have to sort this out themselves they need to make sense of it they need to self-manage the 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 feelings the effects that they have um and this just creates extra emotional and um, invisible labor yeah and these are really busy people yeah. like they're in an elite environment trying to play in an, in the elite women comp woman competition for afl but then they're also they're workers as i said they're sisters mothers partners yeah so on so so i'm coming up to sort of writing the discussion and that but i I sort of see that there's real room for a a player center framework of practice in which um in which there needs to be some sort of guidance Um, education at the moment from the clubs from the strength conditioning coaches i spoke to is very ad hoc it's very um based on there's no time the time is really poor so it's also based around the contractual arrangements that they have. So yeah. you probably found this in your work with cricket and it's probably something they've been um, dealing with as well. As you, you only get the players at the club for a very short period of time. Yeah. Um, and they have to go and do, um, you know, do all their gym work. They have to go and do their physical work. And then the coaches, the, the actual coaches want them on there playing with the footballs and things like that. But, but I see that as a real reactive way of looking at things. So mm. these players are also, um, they're only at the moment playing a 10-round season. Um, they're only contracted for six months. You know, they only get a short window of pre-season. So there's probably three, four months of the year they're by themselves training. Yeah. So, so these digital um, tracking technologies can be really positive in, in that, that respect, mm. but they're not given the tools, the infrastructure, the, the know-how, to, to support this so so having some sort of a uh, a framework in which a player center framework in which they can positively use that because at the end of the day what happens is is that these um, technologies if, if they're not um, harnessed right they, they can have really negative impacts on how the players see themselves and their bodies mm. um, and we, we've got to be really careful um, like professional w- women athletes one of the highest number of um, people in um, the world to have like body dissatisfaction okay. issues. Um, and you can get um, things like um, like relative deficiency syndrome, which is, um, 
which is related to either purposeful or deliberate um, underfueling of the body and then over-exercising. Mm-hmm. So it's quite common in um, um, long-distance runners. So um, Professor Holly Thorpe and Marianne Clark have done some really good work on that from um, um, about about long-distance runners. And, and um, so it's really important that these digital self-tracking devices are, are sort of... I wouldn't say regulated, but there needs to be a level of expertise in this elite environment yeah. on how they're used or, you know, there could be some... And, like, uh, not everyone's going to develop an eating disorder or, or you know, um, become addicted to using these devices, but they have that potential. Yeah. But, but on the other end of the scale, they can just... I just have players that just said, you know, just using this makes me feel shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, you don't want that. Yeah. Should when be helping, not it should really. be it should be really helping and motivating you to be the best athlete you can be. So that's that's sort of where the findings are coming out at the yeah. moment. So yeah, it's really exciting putting putting the sort of details together and and bringing the story together because there's there's some some other issues around um, like wearability issues are another problem. Which mm-hmm. getting back to the the gendered aspect. Um, so the 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 players comment a lot about the, the smart watches are too big and heavy. They're not comfortable. The straps are way too big, mm. um, and there's there's research around um, just a uh, probably seventy percent of the designers and developers of these technologies are men, and it's quite clear that um, the the design of these technologies are, are, are through a, a white heterosexual lens. Um, so, like things like um, like a lot of these footballs are really small, so they just they haven't they get heart rate straps that just don't fit around. Right. around their bodies um, and then there's other issues like um, they have to wear like wear a GPS with a GPS bra that then goes over the sports bra mm. and then they can connect a heart rate monitor to the GPS bra but because they're already wearing a sports bra the GPS uh, the, sorry the heart rate monitor sits on the bra the sports bra not the skin okay. so then it impacts the accuracy mm. so these these aspects are then reinscribing back onto the footballer that they don't belong in this space. Right. That the equipment that is made for these athletes is not functional for them. Yeah. And it's really, this is getting back to this, this vital materialist lens where the footballers are not, they're reminded of this discourse yeah. that they're, they're playing in a space that they're not. Yeah. It, it's, um, Noor Pawar had a, has had a really good um, concept of um, space invaders. So um, people that do not f- fulfil the somatic norm, so the bodily norm of a particular space are invading it. So she did a lot of great research about um, UK politics and women coming into politics and just being complete space invaders in that space. Um, and you see this in sport all the time. And um, the incident that um, happened with Taylor Harris a few years ago where she had that picture of her kicking the ball mm-hmm. and then was subjected to... to um, vile misogyny yeah that's a classic example of a, a space invader where a person who does not fulfill the somatic norm of a particular space has come into that space and they're reminded of it sharply yeah and that's what the the wearability issues are doing can you just expand on that for someone who might not know what happened in that so, Ta- so taylor harris was i think this was the second it was only the second season it's about 2018-19 it might have been channel 7 had a photo of her kicking a goal and it was a was just basically a pitch, a really a picture of a really athlete, athletic. Yeah, it's an iconic photo. Yeah, Australian yeah. rules football, just kicking a ball where she was in mid kick and she was off the ground, 
Um, and Channel 7 posted that up um, on their social media. And within hours, it just was um, had hundreds and hundreds of vile, misogynistic comments on it. And then Channel 7 decided to pull the photo down and that probably made things worse. Mm-hmm. Um, my um, colleague at Swinburne, Dr. Casey Simons, she's written, um, she, she does a lot of um, like journalistic writing and um, I know Casey's written some really good stuff for The Guardian and that on it. Um, and then what resulted from that was that um, Channel 7 actually then decided the next year that they just wouldn't post or they wouldn't put any, let any comments on, on anything that they posted for, for AFLW, which is not really fixing the problem. Yeah. But that, yeah, that to me is just this perfect example of this, um, of AFLW footballers are uh, space invaders into the game of Australian rules football, mm. which is traditionally, culturally and socially in this country framed as a, as a masculine game. And even, even on the weekend, we just had the grand final and it was, um, the grounds were an issue, the, 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 I'm not here to defend AFL at all, but you know, the the game was the the competition was rushed, and they didn't have the grounds. And Brisbane ended up getting the the qualification, and they couldn't access the the Gabba or the um, Metricon Stadium at the Gold Coast. So they played it at Springfield, which is a brand new oval, never been used before, and they could only have ten thousand people. And all over social media, there was comments from like, "Why why is it? Why are we bothering with a game where there's only ten thousand people going to the grand final?" and um, that just really gets me frustrated, and yeah. um, there's comments like we had, we just had four new expansion teams come into the um, AFLW, and we had some games where there was like five or ten goals to one point, and we just have to remember that this is a new competition, it's season seven, yeah. and go back. I think it was in 1901 when the AFL or the VFL then was only four or five years old, and Geelong kicked 150 points to St Kilda's one point. Right. So in the AFLM, there's been a lot of bad games and there's been a lot of bad teams mm. and they've had 125 years to sort it out and billions of dollars of investment. So mm. And cricket, your space where you, you've done your research, like they're so far ahead. But cricket was the same. Like 15 years ago, women's cricket did not resemble what, what it does now. Yeah. And the, the investment, I know Sarah Styles who's um, she's the CEO of Change Our Game. She worked at the Australian Cricket Board and put a lot of work into um, into that, um, into sort of advancing um, cricket, women's cricket, and sort of in in women's sport. Like cricket is is one of the the real like success stories, and you can sort of see where the AFLW can go to looking at cricket. But you got to remember, yeah. cricket's had. 10 or 15 year head start yeah and i think this this might be anecdotal so i'm not sure i'm not sure where this came from this knowledge of mine <laughs> so it may not even be knowledge but it was told to me at some point that the afl was meant to launch the aflw two or three years later than they mm. actually did and they moved yeah. that up because the wbbl yep. got off to such a red hot start yeah uh, that they just wanted to move as quick as they could yeah so that, that's exactly right and it's probably thankful that they did because it was scheduled to start at 2020 so it probably wouldn't have started now because of COVID. Of course. Yeah. So they started at 2017 and it's been, it's been a great, it's been a great thing. Um, and the, the data shows that the, the number, the participation of young girls playing football since, or well, for the last 10 years has gone exponentially, but since the AFLW, it's like three, 400 times. It's just gone crazy, yeah. the number of girls. And it's, yeah. it's just fantastic. And like when I spoke to my participants, like I, 
I generally start off with some ice-breaking questions about, you know, what did, what does sport mean to you? And um, the reason why I'm so passionate about women's sport is is this idea of, um, like, I don't understand what it's like to watch a game that I love and not relate to anybody who's playing it. So this comes from commentary or anything. And, and one of my participants said one of the great, great quotes to me, you know, when just when you're doing an interview and you just get a great quote, and she mm. said... Um, she said, when I was a kid and I was in the backyard playing footy, I would imagine myself playing for Essendon, but I would imagine myself playing for the men's team. I couldn't even process in my mind yeah. that I would be playing for girls. Yeah. And young girls now don't have to worry about that. They can see Madison Provarkas, they can see Daisy yeah. Pierce running around. And I think that was what got me into researching women's sports, living in Canberra, and I went and saw a, an A-League, a women's A-League match. And... I just got to see all these young six, seven, eight-year-old girls with like Ali Carpenter and Kira Simon's shirts mm. just sitting on the, on the sidelines and just thinking, like my sister's like 37, 38 and she loves sport and like she never got to see that when she was a, yeah. young, a young girl and, yeah. and, and I think that's, that's the most exciting thing and it's something which I'm really like um, we've got a great community here at Swinburne with... with um, Professor Emma Sherry and, and Dr. Casey Simons are, are really big advocates in the women's um, women's sport space. And it can get really negative at times. It can get really mm. depressing. As I said, like on the on the weekend, the AFLW grand final, when you just see some of the comments. But I sort of try to stay positive at times and just think about, yeah. wow, you know, like five or six years ago, there was no AFLW. Like yeah. the, the, the women's game of rugby league is, is really doing great stuff and yep. we have um tracy taylor who's presenting here she's done some really excellent work in the in the um women's rugby league space about professionalization and mm -hmm. you have a look we're, we're hosting the women's world cup um well this year um and and we'll um you know the matildas are one of the best teams in the world yeah you know you, you get to see the um the american women's team is just they're yeah. on par with any other any other team in the world mm. male or female mm. Um, cricket as well. Before the pandemic, we had what eighty-seven thousand. I was the there. Came, yeah. that, that was the last time I got to do something cool before the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> so, like thinking about like ten, five years ago, like to have a a yeah. women's cricket match at the MCG and have eighty-seven thousand people. Yeah. The second but, biggest crowd for a women's mm, sporting match ever. Yeah, and yeah. you look over in Europe, and I know like Barcelona and Real Madrid have have like 91,000 people yeah. going yeah, to their right. Champions the League matches. Yeah, that's right. The yeah. So there is some really good inertia happening in this space. So I just try to stay positive. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think if you take a long view, because like you're saying, it's it's a similar thought that, that I've had in the past as well, where when people, especially students of mine, because this is a, a debate that we have in, in subjects like sport and society, uh, where if you want to talk about the number of AFLW clubs, for example, and then the talent pool, the player pool that you have available to draw from, uh, you're getting down into true amateurs yeah. uh, that have never actually had proper professional strength and conditioning yep. and dietitians oh, and all yeah. of this. But if you don't create the capacity in for the player pool to grow to, then it will never grow. You, you yeah. s you're certainly right. So in... Um, talking about AFL, so Australian rules. So in 2002, I think it was, 
before 2002, it was a, it was illegal for girls over the age of 12 to play with boys. So basically, right. and then there was three girls that took um, their club and Victoria football to court, anti-discrimination court, saying it was discriminatory, and they were ruled in their favour, and then that was the start of um, increasing number of girls because the authorities didn't want girls playing with, with boys before after the age of 12, so they had to give them a team. Mm-hmm. So there's only been a generation of, of that development pathways through. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing it now with um, like Madison Prabakis and Georgie Prabakis um, who have come through that development pathways and they're elite AFLW footballers now. So, so there needs to be another, another generation of that because we just had the AFLM draft last night and there's 17, 18 year old kids that are being drafted mm-hmm. and these are, these are kids that mainly from private schools that from the age of 14 or 15 have been in like representative sport. Yeah. Have, and I had one of my participants say to me, um, the, the men have like, they're just being told they're going to be an AFL footballer. They're experiencing elite environment competitions. Um, some of the players get to go and train with some of the AFL clubs. They have affiliates where the, where the girls don't get that. And even some of the development, like the under-18s girls teams uh, with things like the GPS trackers, the strength and conditioning coaches said, look, there's only, they've only got one or two and that's if the boys aren't using them. And they're, just, they're, just, um, they're not useful with the data that they're producing. So they're getting into these systems and they're not having any experience and, and they're not really seeing. And then uh, on the flip side of that, like once you're in the system, it's like, what are you going to do? Like you, you might play for four or five years, you might enjoy it, but is that going to be a real job for you? Are you going to have any yeah. sort of, is there any career paths past playing AFLW? Yeah. Like if you're, if you're an AFLM player, you know, there's media possibilities, there's sports um, like, like management, um, management roles of, of talent. Um, you can go off into, into many different things. And then there's also the, the corporate capacity of these clubs for AFLM to get you into, into particular jobs where, where AFLW, like Daisy Pierce and Abby Holmes are unicorns compared to everyone else. And coaching as well. Like, like I'm sure we're going to see lots of papers here this week about, <laughs> about the lack of like women access into coaching. So, so there's definitely, yeah, there needs to be this, this pathway. And um, getting back to, to Tracy Taylor, she's done a lot of great work about professionalisation and, and professionalisation in sport, it's a, it's a trajectory in women's sport and they're on a trajectory in like as i said all women's sports and crickets further up their trajectory aflw's at the start and you just need to give it time but you also need to yeah. give it support and infrastructure yeah and i think that's really really important that we that we give it that time to breathe and and i think we need to be really mindful of the criticism that we give we can't look at everything through the prism of of male sport mm-hmm so um, if you criticise a player or you criticise a team or you criticise a sport, if you do that in AFLM, that's fine. Yeah. Next week, people are still going to watch the game. People are still going to turn up. Yeah. It's banter. Exactly. <laughs> but, but if you criticise, like um, at the, I think it was the start of this year or it could have been last year, there was real criticism about the way Meg Langing, Langing um, handled the, the one-off test match in her captaincy mm-hmm. um, and it came from um, a sports station here in Melbourne and there was no context given to the fact that Meg, Meg Lanning has played about four test matches in her career or yeah. in, in the last four or five years there's yeah. no test match cricket played um, and 
and the ramifications of, of making those comments to an emerging sport has real significant like impact. Like if you criticise what Pat Cummings does today at the cricket, yeah, people are still going to go tomorrow. They're still going to watch it. Yeah, but if you are a high profile journalist and you criticise what you know Elise Healy, Elise, Elise Healy did, or you know one of the Meg Lang's decision, or you know Daisy Pierce's decision. It has wider ramifications to the sport, yeah. And I think that that's where we need to have this context around the media coverage, but the whole framing around around women's sport, I think, is mm. really, really critical. And the commentary is another one of those areas that you said where it's still mostly male commentators commentating yeah. on women's sport. And yeah, it is going in the right direction, I think. But and that's where I think it's real. In Melbourne, we've got a, um, a player, Libby Birch, who she plays for Melbourne. She just won the premiership, but she writes some really good. Um, opinion pieces in the age and I think that voices like Libby who's in the environment Mm -hmm. um, and and you know there's there's lots of vexing questions in the AFLW that are really hard to solve like when to play the games like should that like if you ask most people we used to in traditionally in the AFL is they had um curtain raises which were the reserves were played before and um, they probably did that with rugby as well so we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just one. And like, so there's this call for like, oh, the AFLW should just be like the curtain raiser to the AFLM game. I was like, well, that's okay. That, that seems logical. But, you know, once again, you're, you're making an assumption that that is a secondary competition to that competition, yeah. you know. That's what cricket used to do. They would yeah. have the yeah. women play. And, and I always found it problematic that they called it a curtain raiser. And I remember there was a TV ad, one of the first two or three years of the WBBL, uh, which came along after the men's BBL had started, saying, come early and watch the women. Yeah. You know, so it's, and they're, you know, I, I like to, the WBBL might be my favorite sport at the moment, and at least Perry is my favorite athlete maybe ever. Uh, and I love watching her and her team play. And at that time, if I wanted to see them play, well, I have to pay $40 yeah. for a ticket to watch, to quote unquote, watch the men's match, but actually I'm there to watch yeah. the women. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, it does create, but, but it, it is it is it is really problematic but then in saying that when do you play it so yeah. so Libby Birch has, has, has had some really good stuff about you know maybe it's better to have just Melbourne and Hawthorne and, and Carlton and play the games at the mm. same time um, work out some clear air to do that you can extend the season out but these are really difficult questions yeah and there, there's no there's no great solution mm. But I think that once again, getting back to what I was talking about with positionality and 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 doing research um, in this space, talk to the people that are participating. And this was the yeah. biggest problem about the change. They just changed the season in the AFLW, and there was very little to no consultation. And they just said, "Oh, we're going to do it in August." Um, and it was almost like they, in February, they just floated it out there as like a thought bubble in a press release. Was it yeah. a press release? It was leaked. <laughs> And then it was like, we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. And it was like six or eight weeks. There was girls that were living in Ireland that had to decide, you know, when they're going to come back. Right. We've got other um, players that are, you know, they have to take annual leave from their jobs to play. So whatever decisions are made, I think it's really clear. There needs to be, I know that there's commercial aspects involved, but they need, they need to involve all the stakeholders. Yeah. And uh, I think that's, that's critical. I couldn't agree more. Mm. <laughs> well, and Netball's had some problems with this, where they've, with a sponsorship issue recently, where the mm. players' values did not align with the perceived values of the sponsor. 
uh, as well, the the addition of the two point shot yeah. was not run by players. Uh, and, and I think that this is where like being at this sports management conference is a really interesting thing to start looking at. Is this the way in which the power of athletes is changing, and mm. and and the athletes are not just these commodities that exist inside this organization to perform a particular action and at one extreme you can see that with someone like Ronaldo who has got a ginormous Instagram following and made Coke's share price drop when he removed them from a press conference (laughs) at a a major tournament but even to Pat Cummings um, not really being happy in, in Atlanta ads and looking at the the same thing with the netball and looking at um you know climate change and indigenous issues around around company sponsorship and i think that this is where these sporting organizations they're going to have to start in all sports are going to have to start including the thoughts of the, the players but i definitely think yeah as these emerging sports are are coming coming to fruition there needs to be consideration to the mm. to the players and the stakeholders that are involved i think and and the core fans as well like there's a core group of AFLW fans that are, are very different to AFLM fans. And there, there needs to be some some consultation with them too. Yeah. Um, do, do Some enjoy playing at these smaller suburban grounds where there's standing room and seats, no seats. And um, I always get the feeling when I go to an AFLW game, you might have the same of a BBL game. It's very egalitarian. You just sit where you want to sit. Yeah. Um, it's not too there's expensive. There's the hill, there's the bleachers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a, it's not an onerous thing where you know you go to some mainstream sport and you, you end up having to spend all your disposable income and then you take all day to do it and yeah, um so there's so there's a fan aspect as well that needs to be considered. But then on the flip side, playing at these suburban grounds that haven't got proper stands, they affect the product like the yeah. the weather conditions aren't great. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So there's complex questions that cannot be solved in, a, in an hour podcast. <laughs> That's right. Which on that note, would you believe we've been going over an hour? Wow. Uh, so probably we'll start. We've, we've mentioned a couple of times that we are here at this man's conference yep. and you've, you've talked about some presentations that you're yep. interested to see. But what are, you, uh, what are you hoping to get out of the conference? This is the first one that you're attending in person, yep. right? Yeah, most definitely. Um, just to meet people. So really lucky to, to have it here at Swinburne where I'm working. Um, so just to just to meet and put put a lot of um, faces to names, as I said over the yeah. last last sort of um, two and a half years, um, met a lot of the the um, fellow HDR students, but also academics in in different um, in different um, settings online. So so to really make those connections in in person and 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 just to to, to keep on building on those those sort of networks and, and yeah. yeah see some see some great great presentations and some some great sort of um always like these conferences where you can you know get some provocating ideas in which you can come to and you yeah. can really say okay well i haven't thought about that and, and being smans and sports management there's a vast array of things like i as i said i'm very much based around my work around sociology and the social side but sort of looking at these you know organizational perspectives and and and, and how different academics tackle different problems or look at different problems and say okay well you know, do I agree with that? Do I not agree with that? Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and and how have they have they looked at that? And I think that 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 is the, is the best thing about it is is creating. And I think Smans is a great great community for that. If you if you're if you're researching around any sort of sports, sport and society, sports sociology, sports management, sports marketing, it's definitely 
and you're in Australia or New Zealand or even if you're not, if you're in North America or Europe, mm. yeah, get, in, get involved with SPANS because it's a great, great community. It, it um, leverages off um, NASM and ESM in, in North America and Europe as well. So you can, I've, I've, we've had some great sessions together where we've networked with people and we've got, we've got people from North America and from Europe that have come. So yeah, it's just a great way to really build a community because I'm, I'm very lucky here at Swinburne, like I'm a part of the sports innovation research group. So we have, I think it's eight or nine PhD candidates, but I know a lot of people that do their PhD. It's very isolating. You, yeah. you're, you're, you're in a, you're not even really in a faculty. You're just in a, you're in a, a silo where there might only be one person studying sport in your whole yeah. school. So you don't have that support around you. So I think that, you know, having a, an industry, a uh, uh, disciplinary sort of um, group like, like SMANS is, is a great place that you can foster that, that community if you don't have it. So I think it's a really, it's a really important thing to get involved in and can really help. Yeah, no, I agree. That's, SMANS has been really beneficial to me through the years and I've enjoyed uh, my involvement, giving presentations, doing the workshop today. Uh, as well, just all the people that I've met and have been really supportive. It's you hear horror stories, especially if you spend too much time on academic Twitter <laughs> about uh, about conferences and people asking questions that are actually aggressive comments mm. uh, and being kind of harmful in that way. But I've I've only had the opposite here. Yeah. I've only had people be really encouraging and positive and and curious as well about yep. something I'm doing. I'm, I'm kind of the first one in the space yep uh and so it's it's been a lot of introducing what it is to people through the years but i've appreciated that people have wanted to hear that answer yep uh and that's why that's why i'm here doing these podcast recordings as a first move as well that i knew this would be a place that i would find people who are keen to come and have a chat and uh and are doing important impactful work like what you're doing great Mm. no it's been it's been a blast and yeah it's a it's a great time to especially coming out or not coming out but as we're progressing in this sort of post-covid world and, <laughs> yeah. and and having this opportunity to to meet in person you sort of i think we all have a new perspective on the valuing it so mm. really not taking it for granted so yeah that's right that's right uh what's on the horizon for you any any publications or other conferences you're looking to attend so yeah most as i said um so i've got my final um like sort of panel review or my three-year panel review coming up the end of february so everything's on track for that and then i'm hoping to submit my my phd thesis around middle of next year so it's definitely just working up a a publication schedule um as i said i've got a couple of other sort of side publications um in in review at the moment but really getting that this sort of the publication schedule i've probably got about four or five publications lined up for my thesis that i'll that i'll work on next year but but it's really yeah just sort of sort of working towards getting that 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 thesis done Mm -hmm. and then yeah hopefully yeah Maybe next, uh, next man's in Geelong. It might be Dr. Paul, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. Fingers crossed. The end is always a, a perilous time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. But no, I'm actually really enjoying it. Like it's sort of being a qualitative researcher. I think it's uh, when you start to tell the story, I always say you start yeah. telling the story of what you're trying to say and it's coming together. It's It's been, it's been a a really enjoyable sort of last sort of three months of sort of starting to sort of write all the findings chapters and start thinking mm. about the discussion and that so yeah well i've enjoyed hearing your story today thank you thank <laughs> you so much <laughs> uh but let's put all that aside the last question i want to ask you yes. is outside of the phd and all your travels in academia what's something in your life that you're excited about right now um interesting question i would say as i said i started this journey 
to become well, I never set out to become a doctor but to become an, a, a lecturer um, probably 2015 so I think sort of coming to sort of the end of that is is it's you do make a lot of sacrifices like I've probably lived when I was a chef I was probably living on between 80 and a hundred thousand dollars a year and probably the last eight years I've lived on about twenty five to thirty thousand right. dollars a year mm. so just having that opportunity to you know, to to work as a sessional academic more to to, to, to progress our life together like my wife is been really really supportive and um, like she's basically supported me for the last sort of three years three or four years while she's gone into into her work so sort of progress our life more in that respect so we've we've just bought a we've bought a house so sort of been able to sort of progress those sort of life goals that you mm-hmm. have of you know doing some renovations and and sort of advancing our life because it's a big thing when I think I was 37 when I started um, this this track of, of a academic life and um, it's been challenging like you you go from a, a job where you're like a manager you you're you're sitting in that sort of power structure to you're back down at the bottom and it's sort of like the whole journey it's been a bit difficult you always especially being a mature age student you you stand out a little bit and I've only actually found the last couple of years it's actually a benefit. It's like when I've started teaching and that, they just mm. people just assume because I'm 45 years old that I must have a wealth of experience. <laughs> just wise. <Yeah. laughs> so I think it's just sort of moving on to that next... I think I'm more excited about just moving on to the next phase of, of my life and, and professionally and privately just all encompassing that sort of new phase of... Not not the not finishing studying because I, I love learning, but sort of taking the learnings or the knowledge that I have and just progressing it in a in in that sort of academic environment and taking what I can learn and then like most of my life I've just done research or study to fulfil a percentage of a grade to then move on to the next grade. Mm-hmm. And even like my honours research, like I've, I've had I've had to rework it, and I've got that in to be published. But like I read that, had to I, I, I passed my honours thesis onto a colleague the other day who's thinking doing their honours, and I read the abstract and I was horrified that I submitted <laughs> that. But getting to this point now of like, and like I'll probably feel the same when I five years time I look at my PhD. Right. But you, but when you get to the end of a PhD, you're getting to the point where you know you're. You, you sh- if you're doing it successfully, you should have some substantial ideas that can can yeah. be can make a difference. Yeah. Um, and like I, you, you had a, a fantastic workshop today on design thinking, well, and and that's a perfect example of mm. your your work that you did in your PhD can be revolutionary if people want to pick it up mm. for, for how they run their organisation and that. And I think that that's the most exciting thing for me is is these ideas, these these things that are coming out of out of this work. Can 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 have some some hopefully some some positive impacts on on people in sport, and I think that's what I'm I'm most sort of excited about. I think I answered your question. Yeah, no, you did. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's that's a fantastic way to end. I think that's a great answer, and uh, I wish you all the best with all of it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity to to have a chat with you. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, likewise, and uh, yeah, we'll tie a bow on it there. Thanks Excellent. a lot, Paul. Thanks a lot for that, Greg.